Well, good morning, friends. I'm a little sad today. We, we started a journey the first week of January called You Asked For It. This is our last message in this series, and it's been good to kind of stretch ourselves a little bit, to, to walk into some places where we had to, to wrestle with the tension of what the Bible says and where sometimes that can be a place that is challenging for us. And uh, we're going to talk about alcohol today, and I don't think this one is maybe as emotionally charged as some others, but it touches so many lives, and, and even after first service, I'm confident that maybe each of us can walk away a little more confident and clear, maybe even a little challenged in some places where we've lived, how we've lived before. So I'm looking forward to that. Here at North Terrace, um, we're so glad you're all here. We want to join you in this journey of life you're on, especially in the spiritual side of that, but really in, in all aspects of relationship and life. We're looking down the road in ways that we can, one of, our, one of our key values is one more family strengthen. And we're trying to figure out many ways we can do that. We're going to have a big uh, parenting uh, workshop in May. You're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks and months. But we're also looking even further down the road and saying, what can we do to enrich marriages, to support them? So many marriages um, go through periods of crisis and, and struggle. Um, Tanya and I have been through counseling before uh, to, to keep making sure our, our marriage is growing and thriving. Um, we are preparing that for that. So, so that you can be part of that, maybe, if in your bulletin you would take out what we call our Connect card. It's a tool we use for you to connect with us, let us know you're here, but you can also give us prayer requests on there. But on the back side of it, there's a thing called the weekly question. Here's the question this week. Would you be interested in being mentored in your marriage by a couple who's been trained, or, or and, would you also be interested in being a mentoring couple? We, we're not launching this next week. We're building a pool of names, trying to gauge interest, so that in the future, we can have a pool of names and people to support each other, build each other up, and uh, so on your way out, you turn that in the white boxes, and uh, that'll give us, you'll be contacted in the near future. Um, there'll be a level of training to be a mentor, and uh, we're looking forward to that being part of our journey. We're going to talk about alcohol today. I'm going to tell you about my story, um, where, where, where I am in my journey, um, and to understand it, you need to understand my family. Um, the Steels um, have been drinkers, have been drinkers for a long time to the point of dysfunctional alcoholism. Now, I don't know if there's a thing called functional alcoholism. I'm not going to make a case for that. But we had all the fun that comes with dysfunction in it. There was emotional violence. There was a level of physical violence. There was relational discord. Family get-togethers, especially around Christmas and Thanksgiving and other major holidays, it was just a matter of time before my grandpa and his brothers would get in a fight, and instead of having a happy family memory around the holiday, it would walk away, everybody mad at each other, and we're never going to talk to each other again until four weeks from now when we get together again. And some of you can laugh a little bit because you live some version of that or have before. My dad and his sisters, following generations of alcoholism, said, it's got to stop, and it's got to change. And so they made a choice, my dad and his two sisters, to say, we're just not going to drink. And that doesn't mean that many of the patterns that had been long set didn't play out in our family. They were so deep-seated in our family and how we operated that even though alcohol wasn't part of the home I grew up in, sometimes it was almost like it was, just because that was the patterns of how we dealt with stuff. But because my dad and his sisters made that choice, our family began to heal from long-term wounds. And so my brothers, my sister and I, my cousins, 
you can see the benefits of the choice that our parents made. And now you can see our sons and daughters are so much better off mentally, emotionally, friends, even physically. Men in my family have died in their mid to late 40s. I'm 48. I'm kind of aware of that. One of the reasons was they smoke and they drank. They were diabetic. They had all these things that played into that, and they'd have a heart attack in their late 40s. So I can't 100% do anything to prevent that, but I'm working hard to make sure I'm making some choices that give me a better benefit. But I'm going to tell you this. I've made a choice in my life to not drink. It's not necessarily a moral choice. It's, it's a personal protection choice. I think I would like it. I think I would like it a lot. I don't think I would stop. And it, there's enough stress in my life that any escapist behavior I tend to be drawn towards, anything that kind of numbs me to the, what's going on in the moment. And so I've, I've just made a choice that I'm not going to... If I'm at a wedding and we're, we're toasting, I'll, I'll sip the champagne. I, I, I'm not like some legalist, like nothing's ever touched my lips. Stuff's touched my lips. My high school youth group spiked my strawberry crush. That's a great youth group. <laughs> we had some problems. <laughs> so there's another story there. But, um, but that's a choice I've made. Now, I have a son who's of age. He was home at Christmas. We went to Roosters. He said, Dad, I know you're buying. Are you okay if I get a beer? And I was like, well, yeah. I'm, if we go out to dinner and I'm buying, I'm not going to be offended if you get a drink. Now, if I'm buying eight just for you, not for financial reasons are we going to have a talk. But, yeah. If, now, if you ask Jonah, he'll say, yeah, Dad gave me the dad talk. He talked a little bit about our family history, how I need to be wise, how I need to be guarded. But I don't want him to live in fear and paralysis. I want him to be wise and use freedoms and responsibilities well. And so I'll walk that road with him. I'll ask him how he's doing every now and then. And I know it's not an issue for him. But I also know I'm going to keep asking so it never becomes one. So what are we going to talk about this morning? I tell you all that to say we're going to try to do what we've done throughout this series. What does the Bible actually say? How should we live together as a family of faith that is trying to be a little bit more like Jesus, be a healthy spiritual community that impacts the lives of many, that loves well and lives well? And so what can we do when it comes to alcohol? So I'm just going to ask a series of questions and respond to them with scripture. Here's the first one. Is alcohol evil? Is alcohol evil? It's a good question. Because if it is, then this is going to be a really short sermon. And some of you are like, sweet, we can beat everybody at Roosters today. Roosters getting a lot of press today. Um, my bad. Is alcohol evil? Well, let's just give you a few things to think about. In the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, David writes this in verses 14 and 15. He says, he, the he here is God, makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate bringing forth fruit from the earth. So this is ways God provides for humanity, things for life. This is his abundant providence. Look at what verse 15 says. He also makes wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. So, who made alcohol? God. And in this context, it's in a list of things that have a benefit for humanity. Now, 
any of these used to an extreme could be gluttony or also cause damage in some ways, but a gift from God used appropriately can be of benefit. So wine that gladdens human hearts. The Bible doesn't apologize for alcohol's presence in the world or its potential role in humanity's life. But it does give some boundaries that we'll talk about in a little bit. So let's at least acknowledge that by even saying God made it and it's part of a list of good things, that it's not inherently evil. Let me build on that. So there's a guy named Jesus. You've heard of him. And Jesus goes from being the son of a carpenter in Nazareth to what we would call a very public figure. And in the earliest days of that transition from unknown to known, he actually goes to a family gathering in the city of Capernaum. It's probably a glorified town. And at a wedding feast banquet, even before he's well-known, he's a guest, and these wedding feasts weren't just a simple buffet little thing after like a reception. These were a multi-day party that the whole town would participate in. And there was even an official role where somebody was like the party host. It was a position of honor. Sometimes it was a family member. Sometimes it wasn't, but they were called the master host, the master of the party. So Jesus is at this party. And in John chapter 2, we get Jesus turning water to wine. The party goes on, and they run out of wine. That's not good. That's actually going to bring shame on the bride and her husband, shame on the family that's providing this. And these are apparently some connection to Jesus and his family. So in the story, Jesus' mom, who is Mary, comes to him and says, son, she apparently has some sense that he can actually do something about this. And I don't think she's saying, go run down to the liquor store and pick up a few things. She's saying, I need you to do something about this. I need you to make it better. And and Jesus actually, in my opinion, sasses his mom a little bit. Because if you read this story, and I'm not going to read the verse, but he says, woman, it's not my time yet. That's pretty bold talking to your mama. But he does. And she says, tell everybody what to do. She basically bulldozes right through his, 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 his resistance and says, you tell them all what to do and they'll do it. So Jesus tells some guys to grab these big urns of water that would have been around the house. And then here's what happens. He turns the water to wine. We'll pick it up in verse 8. So in John 2, verse 8, then he told them, these are the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. So here's how it played out. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. So the guy whose family is paying for this big deal, verse 10, and said, everyone who does one of these wedding parties brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. He even tells why they do it. We're going to give them a few of the good ones. And then when they don't have as discerning of a palate because the alcohol has begun to fog their judgment, then you bring out the cheap stuff because they don't care anymore. But you have saved the best till now. Okay, who provided the best? Jesus. If alcohol is evil, why would Jesus provide something that is evil? So, just a question. I think we know the answer. If I go back to the Old Testament, when God is developing a relationship with the Israelites, telling them how to worship him, he establishes some practices that we might call the sacrifices. In fact, there's a thing called the daily sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 29, he's telling them, here's how you're to worship me. God is saying to humanity, please do these things and I will consider them 
honorable and good. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Well, most of us, if you studied any scripture at all, might be like, okay, there's animal sacrifices in the Bible. I get that. Watch how he keeps going. Offer one in the morning, the other at twilight. So there's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Verse 40. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil from the pressed olives. Okay, nothing big there. And a quarter of a hen of, of wine as a drink offering. God actually asked for humanity to honor him by giving wine as part of the sacrifice. And not just in the morning, verse 41, sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering, that wine, as in the morning, a, a what aroma? A wine as a gift to God as part of the sacrifice which is considered a pleasing thing, a food offering presented to the Lord. Guys, it's not evil. Alcohol is actually part of God's creation, and it's part of his creation plan. It, it's, it's a gift from him. Like many gifts that God gives, it comes with responsibilities and boundaries. We could talk about sexuality this way. We could talk about money this way. Anything in God's creation can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. It comes with a need for wisdom and discernment. And let's say this based on what we just read. Alcohol was an acceptable offering to God. So based on those statements, on what we've read, how Jesus interacted with it, is alcohol evil? The answer is no. But evil can be done because of alcohol. So if evil and sin can be done because of alcohol, is then by default, is drinking alcohol sin? It's a good question. We need to ask ourselves this because I want to walk as Jesus walked. He's our standard for what right living looks like. And so let's look, did Jesus drink? Did, did, did he have alcohol be part of his story? We know he went to the wedding party. We know he turned water to wine. Did he drink? Look at an observation Jesus had about himself in the book of Matthew chapter 11 and how he says, you know, I was actually criticized for how alcohol was part of my life. The son of man, who's that referring to? This is actually one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself, the son of man. Came eating, okay, I'm glad Jesus ate, but he also came drinking. Now the drinking side isn't just orange juice, and Welch's, and Kool-Aid. He didn't have Kool-Aid, you know what I mean. It's, this refers to alcohol. And they say, the people around him who are observing this teacher, this Jesus, this rabbi, the people around, especially those who were trying to undermine him and were attacking him and critical of him, they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. Now that, that's a slanderous attack. Because that's basically saying, no matter what he says, you can just disregard because he's a drunk. There's nothing that should be trustworthy in what he says. And then it gives us some other tags. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, that's actually a badge of honor, in my opinion. And according to the kingdom of God, it is. But sometimes that was also a slanderous term. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus came eating and drinking. And he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Drunkard and a glutton. Actually, in direct contrast to this, there's this other key character in the early days of Jesus' ministry named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, in some ways, there's this term in, in literature called a foil. 
where one, one thought or characteristic acts this way and it allows something else to actually appear even stronger in contrast to it. John the Baptist had what was called a Nazarite vow in his life, and the Nazarite vow was the fruit of the vine, wine, alcohol will never touch your lips. He's not the only one in Scripture to do it. So John the Baptist didn't drink alcohol. And we're told that he actually didn't eat of what we would call the finest fruits of the field or the, the, the animals of the flock. John the Baptist ate locusts and honey. Being a prophet in the Bible is not a good gig. And he wore camel's hair. So you have John the Baptist who does this extreme austerity. You have Jesus who lives as many people lived, kind of a normal life. He, he ate and he drank. You know what they criticized John the Baptist for? You're a freak. You got nothing. What's wrong with you? You know what they criticized Jesus for? You're drunk and are... Interesting contrast. But that's not my primary point here because what this does tell us is what? Jesus drank and was accused of being drunk. So there was some evidence that he drank, enough that it would have had a level of credibility. Now, is there any evidence anywhere in Scripture that Jesus was ever drunk? that he had drank so much alcohol that he was out of control, that he had lost judgment? And the answer to that is no. There's not a single bit of evidence. He was accused of it. His followers were accused of it. But friends, they never, ever have any evidence that they got to the point of drunkenness. Now, Jesus drank. I don't think this meant that when Jesus and the boys, the disciples, were sitting around the fire at night telling old fishing stories as Peter's like, remember that time Andrew fell off the boat? Uh-huh that they were knocking them back. But I don't think it means they weren't taking a sip or a drink every now and then. They weren't teetotalers. They, they had a drink within the boundaries to not lose self-control. Drunkenness is addressed several times throughout Scripture. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has many, many statements about the best way to live, sometimes for economic reasons, sometimes for relationship reasons, sometimes for career reasons, life reasons. Listen to what this says. Listen, my son, and be wise. Set your heart on the right path. That's actually a great intro. Whatever comes after that, I want to pay attention to because it's saying this is a way to live. So verse 20, do not join, <coughs> sorry, I forgot to breathe. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. So those who drink too much wine, that's drunkards, gorge themselves on meat, gluttons. So the extreme, the too much is where we really walk into the issue. Verse 21, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. This acknowledges an economic impact of drunkenness. It also acknowledges a relational impact that you're withdrawn and you lose many of the things that matter most to you. So Proverbs was saying the cost of this is high. You don't want it to be part of your life in a way that becomes destructive. Let me build off that. Go back to the New Testament, the book of Galatians. Paul loved the, the, the Christians in Galatia, a region um, where, they, where he was for a long time. And he often encouraged them and challenged them. And what we're about to read, there's actually this list of things that are high-risk behaviors, things that are sinful, can destroy our lives. And in contrast to this list, there's another list called the fruits of the Spirit. Those are the things we want to pursue, we want to be part of our lives. Look at what this one says. The acts of the flesh, this is a great word in the Greek, sarks. It means both literal body and flesh, but it also means kind of the willful, selfish way we live are obvious. 
sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. We've talked about some of those things in the last couple of weeks. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Okay, stop. Man, it's like he just got on a roll and said, it's all bad. I mean, this is stuff to watch out for in general. Verse 21, and envy and drunkenness, orgies and the like. So really, a lot of things that God can give as healthy aspects of our life can be taken to destructive ends. Almost everything on that list has a healthy way to be exhibited, and he's highlighting here it is in a destructive form. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying the cost can be high. It can pull you away from God to the point that it could cost you everything. So let me give you a few thoughts off what we just read. There are at least 75 warnings in the Bible about drunkenness. 75, at least. And I could probably find some more that seem to relate to it a little bit, but 75, 75 that are overt and clear and speak directly to it. And when they speak, drunkenness is always, drunkenness is always sinful in the Bible. Catch me on that? There's no exceptions. Drunkenness is always sinful according to the scriptures. So we can try to justify, like, it's not a big deal. God doesn't really care. If I, if I take scripture at face value and what it says, I have to accept this is not being subtle anymore. It's pretty clear. Now, even if I'm not drinking to the point of drunkenness, can I speak to you as a friend? And even if you say no, I still am. And let's, just, let's, be, let's be intellectually honest. Let's be emotionally honest with each other. Sinful behavior often follows drinking, even if it's not to the point of drunkenness. We can drink enough to have our inhibitions and judgment impacted. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm drunk, but it means I'm now beginning to make choices I wouldn't make before. Do you want me to have you raise your hands or should we just sit and acknowledge this truth? I thought so. This is not hard. We know this. And it's, it's sometimes one of the reasons we like how we feel when we drink. Because things that were stressing us out before, we tend to not care about as much. And things that, that mattered tend to not matter. And again, choices we would not make, sometimes we'll now make. And 27, 28 years of ministry... I've sat with so many brothers and sisters who have lifelong regrets, lifelong, that if they could go back, they would change one moment. And they would have avoided the moment if they would have said no to at least one more or two more drinks. So it's not a one for one. Just because you drink doesn't mean you will. But I think we need to be candid. I think we need to be honest. It often happens and let's at least count the cost. That's reality. So if that's the case, should a follower of Jesus drink? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, should you drink? We have clearly a freedom. It's not evil, but should we? Well, let's walk into what scripture says. Let's, let's just go into this. The book of 1 Corinthians, this again is Paul writing, and he's writing to the church in Corinth, the believers there, 
and they actually had a really modern USA American Christian mindset of, I have freedoms, I have rights. And they even had a saying. Look at how he quotes their saying. I have the right to do anything. You ever had your child tell you that? You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want. You ever told God that? Own it. We, we all wrestle with the tension of this, of wanting to define our own life. The Corinthians celebrated this, even before they became followers of Jesus. And then, because they understood how big God's grace was, they said, well, we don't have to really do anything anymore because your grace frees us from the obligation. So they say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul quotes them, you say. And then Paul throws in his editorial comment, but not everything is beneficial. And then he quotes them again. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul's taking their mindset and going, I hear you, but there's also some realities in your statement. So let's, let's acknowledge them. Just because something is permissible does not mean it is beneficial, right? Start nodding your heads, please. You know this. It is permissible to eat sugar. Not eating, eating a, an abundance of sugar is not beneficial. It is permissible to be sexually active. But there is sexual immorality that can cost us much. Friends, there are many things that God gives us permission to do that outside of the boundaries of what he gave lead to destruction and a high cost. So let's at least acknowledge, yes, we can. It is an option. But we need to be careful that just because it's permissible doesn't mean it'll be beneficial for us or others around us. So speaking of others around us, what about this? Again, in 1 Corinthians, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, your freedoms, your permissions does not become a stumbling block to the weak. This acknowledges sometimes we'd be just fine having a beer, having two. But that doesn't mean the person you're sitting with would be. You, you all may not know this, but we actually have in our gathering quite a few recovering alcoholics and addicts. I love it. I love that sometimes those who experience personal brokenness, sometimes tremendous loss, feel at home here because they say, where I might feel shame or condemnation in other places, I feel love and grace and support that's cheering me on on my road of sobriety, self-control, and healing. Let's continue to be a gathering like that. But that doesn't mean you always know who. And so you could be sitting with someone who's been fighting a battle for a long time. And as you're exercising your freedom, your permissible act, act might cause a struggle for them. Look at how Paul talks about this. Because in Corinth, it wasn't necessarily alcohol. It was actually more how they worshiped idols and sacrificed meat and all this stuff. So verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So something that would cause them to stumble, to struggle, to, to fail, just because it's okay for you, they might then go, well, it should be okay for me, and it actually causes them to go to a place of brokenness. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died 
is destroyed by your knowledge and your freedom. Verse 12 and on, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fail, to fall. Paul is just saying, be, be careful. Honor each other by, by how you live. And especially if it comes to alcohol, understanding how it might impact others. Be careful about impact on others. So we say all that. What should we do then? Like, is it okay to drink? I mean, sh- should you? I'm going to state it simply. If drinking won't harm you, it is okay. The Bible never says it isn't. Right? That's the stance the Bible takes. If drinking won't harm you, it is okay. Now, let's contrast that with some boundaries. If drinking, if drinking might harm you or will harm you, it is not okay. It's not, guys. Scripture is very, very clear. And so we need to understand and, and please underestimate your, your ability. Because start with, start with a more restrictive boundary because alcohol is not going to build up your defenses. So be wise and be careful. And, and so in expanding on this, just let's just make a couple statements. Um, if it's going to harm us, me personally, you personally, if, I, if my drinking would harm me, the answer needs to be always then, no. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And if it's going to harm anyone else, if it's going to harm others, the answer always needs to be then, no. And I want to state this last one too. If it's going to harm God's reputation in any way, the answer needs to be no. If what I might do or say, if someone might not be as open to the story of God in their life because of alcohol, I need to have a boundary that says no. It's not worth it. Now, there is hope and healing for everyone. And if, if, if you've been struggling with alcohol or anything else in your life, we have a God who conquered death, and he can also conquer the things that bring death, bring destruction, bring pain. And he does it through Jesus Christ. The only way any of us is going to become the men or the women that God has called us to be is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so some of you have chosen to begin to walk with Jesus, and you're on the road to healing, and you're on the road to becoming well, spiritually, mentally, physically. But if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're ready to take those steps and say, I want him to be my Lord and Savior. I want to see change. Then while we sing this song, we're going to have prayer partners right up here. We'd love to talk to you, pray with you. If you need prayer for strength or encouragement or to fight against alcohol in your life, we'd love to pray with you. Whatever we can do, we're here. Let's stand and let's sing.